0: Colossians chapter 2, I'm still preaching on wisdom in the New Testament, wisdom and the superiority of Christ this morning, that Christ really possesses all the treasure of wisdom. The theme of this teaching has uh, was started in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 11, where it says, I have directed you in the way of wisdom, I have led you in upright paths. Today in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, it says, "In these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world." Colossians chapter two, look at verse number two. It says that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the fullest sure assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It seems likely that during the Apostle Paul's lengthy stay at Ephesus, recorded in Acts chapter 19, the message of Christ had been taken to Colossae, by one of his fellow workers. He describes a papyrus, a Colossian Christian serving with Paul, who was the founder of this church. And he says in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, our fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto you, unto us your love in the Spirit. So he went there and he started this church. Now. Colossae was in an inland city, lying beside a river near Laodicea and Heropolis, located on the main commercial thoroughfare between the east and the west. The city was influenced by contrasting ideologies, and these influence made, influences made their way there, and seemed to be reflected in Paul's teaching here in Colossians where he writes to describe the person of Christ in chapter 1, and then to correct the current errors relating to redemption and the pattern of Christian living. It was all getting messed up in the minds of the people there on exactly what was going on, exactly what the truth was, and what the truth wasn't. So Paul, of course, writes the Colossians, and he squares it away. In fact... Papyrus was so upset about what was going on as far as his false teaching is concerned, he went to Paul and told him about it, and now Paul comes up and he writes this letter. The name usually given to the false teaching in the city is the Colossian heresy. This heresy apparently consisted of a mixture of Jewish and Gnostic ideas combined to create a threat to the gospel of Christ. Uh, this unsound teaching sought to reduce Christianity to a legal system and to obscure the person and work of Christ. And of course, this is very serious. And this is where Satan works the most in the church. To twist, uh, and in the world, to twist and obscure the person, the character, the work of Christ. So Paul attacks the, the error in, in the Colossian church and gives a, a clear presentation of countertrudes, in chapter one, one of the main key verses uh, uh, in this book is so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. That is Christ. So the purpose and content content of the book would be in chapter one that this Christ is, is described as preeminent in at least four distinct relationships to God, to created things, to the church and to the work of redemption. And so this epistle exposes the heresy described in chapter 2. And the presentation of the superiority of Christ is the answer to all such errors. That's how Paul begins to refute it. Now, just uh, for your knowledge, the main characteristics of this false teaching found in this book, so I, I don't have to go uh, through every single verse and where it's mentioned. I'll just re- go through uh, several of them to just give you an idea what he was writing this book about, what he was refuting. That the false teaching had certain characteristics. At least three of them are prominent in the book. The first one, it was a rationalist, rationalistic uh, philosophy, which really denied revelation outside what the mind could come up with. Chapter 2, I'd like you to see this verse. Verse number 8, look what it says. He says, see to it, and he uses this phrase over and over again, that uh, see to it that one, no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Christ being the anointed one, and, of course, as revealed in Scripture in a historical context. So they were rejecting uh, they, this This false teaching. had a rationalistic philosophy about it. Secondly, it had um, a legalism about it. Look at chapter 2, verse 16, uh, which really endangered the concept of Christian liberty. It says in verse 16, Therefore let no one, uses that phrase again, act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect, to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. And then thirdly, and fourthly, it was based on some kind of superior knowledge. Knowledge that only a few selected people could have. And so, from that knowledge came a voluntary humility. And then, the worship of angels. Look what it says in chapter 2, verse 18. Again, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, by delighting in self-abasement and worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Now that was the basic of the error that was coming into the church, and so he begins to refute that. And so Paul gives several responses to that false teaching. And in chapter 2, verse number 9, he says, Christ is the fullness of God, and the one in whom the Christian is made full, what it says in verse 9, for in Him are In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Secondly, he says Christ is the reality that is the fulfillment of the types and shadows of ceremonial religion. Um, Chapter 2, verse 17. In Him, these types are done away with, he says, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's saying, listen, you got to look past the shadows and the types and the pictures, and look to the reality. The reality is Jesus Christ. And then, thirdly, he says in verse number 19 of chapter 2, he says that Christ is the head. If he is not giving his proper place, things will come in that are in reality useless to the spiritual life. It happens all the time when people try to live their lives by a bunch of rules and regulations instead of by the example of Christ given in the Word of God. Look at chapter 2, verse number 19. And not holding fast to the head, when they don't do that, from whom the whole body, nursed, held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. And down to verse number 23 of chapter 2, there are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgences. So only the power of Christ in you will give victory over sin. But he mentions a fourth thing in refuting this Colossian heresy. And he says, listen, there's certain implications to false teaching. That false teaching will not really bring you to live like God would have you live. And so what, what he, what he does is in chapter three, which I'm not going to read those passages, the person in whom the word of Christ dwells richly, you remember that passage of scripture, will give evidence of new life. And then he lists in chapter three all these domestic relationships. He says, listen, wives, when Christ dwells in you, you will be subject to your husbands. Husbands, when Christ dwells in you, you will love your wives. Children, when Christ dwells in you by His Spirit, you will obey your parents. Fathers, when Christ dwells in you, you will not provoke your children to anger, but you will raise them in the love and admonition of the Lord. When Christ dwells in you, servants, you will obey your masters, because you know you're really serving Christ. When Christ dwells in you, masters, you will treat your servants justly. So he was saying, listen, the implications of real salvation where Christ indwells you will have very practical implications in your life and comprehensive implications in your life. Thus, Christ is not only to be preeminent in one's doctrine, but in one's duties as well. Now, remember this. Our worship will be enhanced as we contemplate and grow in our ability to comprehend the superiority of Christ given in these passages of scriptures, and especially the majesty of the triune God in his person and in his works. If, in the words of J.P. Phillips, your God is too small or that you have the wrong Jesus, your worship will inevitably also be deficient as well as your practical Christian life. See, the substance of worship must be centered on God, on the biblical God, and on Christ, the Christ revealed in the Scriptures. Now, one of the most perilous aspects of the Colossian heresy is its depreciation of the person of Jesus Christ, the denial of Christ as being God, to the errorists, in Colossi, Christ was not the triumphant Redeemer whom all authority was given in heaven and in earth. At best, He was only one of many spirit beings. So they believed spirit good and material evil, so Christ could never have become flesh because good and evil couldn't get together in that way, so they would never hold to His humanity, and especially the deity as exemplified in humanity. So at best, the only thing they would come up with is that he was uh, it was one of many spirit beings that would bridge the gap between God and men. And of course, there were angelic mediators that usurped the place and function of Christ because they were spirit and they were good. So that's why he brings up these things up in this particular epistle but starting with verse 15, which we're going to look at in chapter 1 this morning, we find an affirmation of Christ's cosmic significance. This great Christological section that shows Christ's supreme position above the whole universe of creatures as being the Creator and the Preserver. And we're going to look at that this morning. Before I do, I just want to Just stop a minute and just tell a story about a young man, William Dyke, who when he was 10 years old was blinded in an accident. But despite this accident, William went on to college and graduated uh, from the university, a university in England with high honors. And while he was in school, he fell in love with a daughter of a high-ranking British naval officer. And they became engaged. Now, not long before they were married, uh, a a type of procedure came up that would be able to uh, help him see. He would have to have surgery, but he decided if the surgery failed, he would never see again. But if the surgery, of course, worked, he would see, but he did not want the bandages cut off until he was up in front of the church. And his bride was walking down the aisle, and then once she was up there in front, that's when he wanted to know whether he could see or not. And so that's what happened. And so that day, all the royalty came, the cabinet members came, distinguished men and women came to just witness the exchange of these vows. The surgery, of course, was performed, the groom came, and he was up there, the organ Trumpeted the wedding march. His bride slowly walked down the aisle and as he stood there, his father and the surgeon were right next to him and his bride standing there. They cut off the bandages and he stood there and looked face to face with her and he said, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. That's the first thing he saw. His wife-to-be. One day, the bandages that cover our eyes will be removed. When we stand face to face with Jesus Christ and say, see his face, we will say too for the first time, you are more splendid and beautiful than we ever imagined. But Scripture has been given to us to begin that process to begin to understand and look into the face of Christ. Oh, though we see dimly, we are to look and to look steadfastly so we know who He is. So no false doctrine can come and tip us over. But we can stay on the path of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ as we gaze into His face. So there are six characteristics that Paul comes and presents to the Colossian church and he's presenting to us this morning through the word of god about who jesus christ is and this is what he says in verse number 15 he says this that christ in his supremacy is the image of the invisible god verse 15 and he and he is the image of the invisible god that's the first thing he says about him now, when the word of God in here uses Jesus in Colossians, he's really referring to his human name, and he's stressing that. The human name meaning uh, Lord or Savior, Jesus. And then he also uses Christ all over the things, and he combines them together. Christ, of course, remember, equals uh, anointed one, or that Christ had a unique position, in this world. And that's when he's using those terms in the Word of God, you have to think of that thing. He's going back and forth between his deity and his humanity, and then he combines both of them together, and he's really doing it to refute this heresy. But he's also teaching specifically about Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God. And there's a vast difference between being created in the image of God as we were as human beings and being that very image. Man was created, not born in God's image. Man thus has the image. He he is in the image, but he is not the image. Jesus is being described here as the image of the invisible God, so the emphasis is on This, that the invisible God becomes visible to men in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the visible representation of God. And the Greek word signifies that Jesus Christ is the exact as well as the visible representation of God. That the invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light is visibly expressed in His Son. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten of God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. Jesus is the very stamp of God the Father as He was before the incarnation and is now. Even the Lord said of Himself when He was talking to Thomas, He said this, You've been with me so long You have seen me and you have witnessed my works and you don't know who I am yet? He says to him, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how do you say, Show us the Father. And in John chapter 12, verse 45, And he who beholds me, beholds the one who sent me. And Satan does not want people to see Jesus Christ as He is revealed in Scripture. He does not want them to see that at all. In fact, take your Bibles, turn over to 2 Corinthians for a minute, chapter 4 and verse number 4. And you'll see this brought out here in this passage, where it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So basically, that's where he's blinding them. He is the image, the form, the appearance, the likeness of God. But not to be interpreted that Christ is the image of God just in a merely material or physical sense. He is more than this. Christ always has been, is, and always will be the image of God. It is a visibility of God comprehended only by the eye of faith. Right there again in chapter 4 of Second Corinthians in verse 6, it says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So he first sets out to say this, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's showing us His deity. But secondly, in verse 15, back to Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 15, that Christ is also the firstborn of all creation. That He is supreme in His divine attributes, as communicated to in His human nature. Look what it says in verse number 15 of chapter 1 of Colossians. The firstborn of all creation. Now the firstborn was either the eldest child in a family, or a person preeminent in rank and dignity. Men named Lightfoot and others see the word as an allusion to the ancient custom whereby the firstborn in the family was accorded rights and privileges not shared by other offspring. He was his father's representative, heir to him. Management of the household was given to him and was committed to him. Now, following that line of interpretation, we may understand the passage to teach that Christ is his father's representative, heir, and has management of the divine household. All creation was committed to him. He is thus Lord over all of God's creation. But I believe that the content text leans more heavily upon firstborn denoting rank and dignity. This means Christ outranks all creatures in every situation. He is supreme head over every created thing. This God-man, in both His natures, towers above the whole created world. Paul wanted to make sure people understood that. And he gives the reason in verse number 16. And the third thing he says about Christ. Look what it says in verse 16. Christ, as the Creator of all things for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority all things have been created by him and for him it further establishes the supremacy of the God man in his nature above all that is in the universe in particular above spiritual beings that he also even created all dominions and rulers and authority in the unseen world, all angels. So if this one that I'm speaking of here, that Paul is preaching here to these people who are believing otherwise, that he's saying, listen, he is the creator of the angels, the spirit beings, things that are not seen. It distinguishes Jesus from all creation. When it affirms the whole universe was created by him, that creation here is viewed as a distinct act A perfect uh, verb is used. He created. This represents creation. Or we can say it like this, it stands created when Christ speaks. But if you notice in this passage, it says this also, that all things have been created by Him and for Him. But in the beginning it says, for by Him all things were created, both in heaven and in earth. Now, This passage here could mean that they were just simply created by him and uh, or it could also mean that they were created within the sphere of Christ. That is, that in his person resided the creative energy that produced all creation. In other words, creation was in him in the sense that it occurred in the sphere of his person and in the sphere of his power. That it was Christ who is the conditioning cause of all things. It was Christ who is the originator of everything, seen and unseen, and all that is created. That he is the center of its spiritual reality and locality. The act of creation rested, as it were, in him alone. By the way, Not only does Satan want to blind people from these truths, but people also themselves suppress these truths because of their own idolatry. Idolatry is is the fruit of willful ignorance. But once a person begins to see the truth about Jesus Christ, then certain things become clear. That one of the point of contacts to real evangelism is showing people or telling people that Jesus is the creator. They already know that. All men and women from all religions in all the world, from all time, alright, well, uh, in preaching the gospel, the time of the gospel preaching, knew and know that Jesus Christ is creator. So that's the point of contact. So when a person begins to understand this point of his person that he is creator two things will result in them that he would be greater than all his creation and that he would be absolutely independent of humanity that Christ didn't need anyone that he was greater than me he's greater than anything he's greater than any spirit He's greater than any power. He's greater than any government. He's greater than all things, heavenly bodies. He's greater than all these things. He is the creator. And then something else will happen as far as man is concerned. Now he'll see, I'm created by God. That the time and space in which I live, as as Paul tells the people in Acts chapter 17, has been determined by God. Everything has been determined by God. Also, that I was created in such a way as to seek God. And then ultimately, in that thinking process, it will bring a person to realize that I owe my very existence to God. Even Paul said to the people he preached to in the book of Acts, a bunch of Greeks, listening to him, he said to them, listen, you guys, when you hear the message that Christ that is the Creator, then you have to change your thinking. And you also have to repent of your sin. And he says to them this, being then the offspring of God, you ought not to think Change your thinking that the divine nature is like gold and silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Listen, stop thinking like that. It's so embedded in your culture. You think you can pick your God up and take him somewhere. Stop thinking like that. But he said instead in verse number 30, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because He has fixed the day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. So here this revelation comes to people about Jesus Christ being the Creator and it's bringing these Gentiles in a sense to a place where they're beginning to see change their mind about Him and repent of their sin about Him and realize too now that Paul leaks it out that this Christ who created the world, created you and whom you're responsible to, also will judge you. See, so like, uh, Christ needs to be your Lord and Savior. If not, He will be your judge. And He did not necessarily want them to do that. And in fact, this is very common thinking in the man of mine. If you take your Bibles for a moment, turn over to Job chapter 12. The other day I was reading in my, uh, daily Bible reading and this passage of scripture kind of jumped out at, off the page at me. Uh, Job is responding to one of his friends, kind of, uh, Job chapter 12 verse six, he's going through this dialogue with them. And of course, his friends are really no help to him. Excuse me, chapter 12 of Job. And um, look down to verse number six. He kind of uh, is chiding his accusers, and he says this to them: "The tents of the destroyers prosper." And those who provoke God are secure, whom God brings into their power. Now, that little phrase there at the end of verse number 6 uh, literally is translated, who brings God into the into his hand. Or some have translated very literally, meaning that they carry their gods. Okay, i got to go to this place. Well, let me get my gods, and they bring them to that place. And then notice what he says after he says that to them. Of course, they understood that statement. Verse number seven, he says, but now ask the beasts and let them teach you and the birds of heaven and let them tell you or speak to the earth and let it teach you and let the fish of the sea declare to you who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. He is chiding them with a very basic truth that God created it all and you can't make him into an image and carry him from place to place. All you gotta do is go to the animals and they'll tell you. See, So in this area we are quite blinded as human beings We suppress that knowledge, and Satan blinds us of that knowledge. There's a dual thing against us, but God is shining forth the gospel of His great light into our heart and saving people, showing us it's the truth. And also, this great truth is keeping us from all kinds of error, too. Now, let's just go back to Colossians for just several other things he brings up about Jesus Christ. So, in a sense, if we are in Christ, And Christ is in us. We need nothing outside the gospel to protect us from anything. Because Christ has absolute superiority in all things. In verse number 16, chapter 1, verse 16 of Colossians, that he goes on to say this, that Christ is the goal of all things. This is where all things are heading. All things have been created by Him and for Him. At the end of verse number 16, and the scriptures ascribe here the origins of all things to Jesus Christ and the ultimate goal to him also. That no created being in the universe is independent of Christ. That creation itself owns its unity, its meaning, and indeed its very existence to Jesus Christ. In fact, the universe has an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. When you come to the Gospels, Jesus is rebuking the winds and the waves and they're obeying Him. Why? He's the Creator. He's the Lord over them. Even the apostles' disciples did not get that right away. They'd have had the blinders lifted to see who Jesus Christ was. Everything in creation is meant to serve his will, to contribute to his glory. All creation, whether they do it willingly or unwillingly, is heading toward the end goal, which is Christ. See, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ. Everybody will have to deal with Jesus Christ, whether now in this life or in the next. He will be their Savior or He will be their judge. Everything is heading to Christ. Everything. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the goal. He's the middle. He's everything. So you can't mess with this person and work apart from what the Bible reveals to us about him. And then he says in verse number 17 this, that Christ as the one before everything, that Christ and He is before all things, simply put, that He's before all all in time. He's before them, and all of them have their continuous existence in connection with Him. That Christ... Simply here is first in time and place. That Christ, in both his natures, his divinity and his humanity is connected with the creation of all things. So all things have permanence in connection with him. Even John and Hebrews all begin their books with this truth. Where, where John said in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. He was right there in the beginning and the word was God and then he says this in verse 2 and he was in the beginning with God again and then says all things came into being by him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being being now of course he is heading towards the truth about redemption salvation that if you mess get messed up in your understanding about Jesus Christ as creator and you don't understand who he is it all leads to Redemption, salvation. And then he concludes with this in verse 17, at at least with this part, as Christ being supreme over all creation, that in Him, in verse 17b, the second part of the verse, in and in Him all things hold together. That Christ here is the sustainer of all things. Not only did He create them, it's an old verb, A.T. Robinson says, and it means to place together, we would get the word cohesion, hold together, glue, super glue, if you want to be hyper-literal today. That Christ is the cr- controlling and unifying force in all of nature, and all of the universe. And the Gnostic, the higher knowledge philosophy, that matter is evil and was created by a remote eon or emanation, is swept away by this teaching that Paul is giving. And the Son of God's love is the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe, and the universe is not evil. Christ is the unifying principle and the personal Sustainer of all things. Hebrews says it like this, and He is the radiance of His glory the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. And apart from Jesus Christ, holding it together, it would all disintegrate. He's saying, that's the Christ that I worship. That's the Christ that will and has provided salvation. That is the one. He is the one who died on the cross and rose from the grave. Him! Well, I guess I guess they don't really know what keeps an atom together. Cuz you have neutrons and protons flying all over the place in this little thing we can't even see. They don't they don't know what keeps it together. It should explode. I mean, Einstein came close to understanding of splitting the atom. What happens? Who keeps it together? God does. Christ does. He holds creation together. And some days, in the history of what the Bible describes as human history, the heavens are going to become unsure someday. Matter of fact, there will be no there'll be all the old heavens and old earth will pass away, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. The illuminaries will become shaky because the time of the end will come. The universe is wearing out like an old garment because of the curse of sin. And Christ is going to bring it all together. He's going to redeem it all and consummate it all. It's all in the person of Christ. All of it. So Christ has supremacy in creation. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the creator of all things. He is the goal of all things before everything and sustainer of all things. That's who he is. Next week, we'll see Christ as the supreme in redemption, that he is the Savior. But he first lays out this these characteristics of Christ as the creator so he can give a person a balanced understanding of who God is.